get brighter up here? It's in my imagination. Anyway, um, good to see everybody who's here this afternoon. And uh, if you're visiting, and I know we have visitors, we're glad you're here. And uh, we hope you'll want to come back and be with us in the future. Tonight in the lesson, if you grabbed an outline, you'll notice, first of all, that it is different than the, out, the uh, sermon that I intended uh, to preach. So Wes and I both pulled this today. I decided I am going to preach um, the lesson that I was going to preach about idolatry, but uh, given our upcoming theme, which we'll talk about more in the next couple of weeks, um, I wanted to shove that back actually to near the end of uh, next of the first quarter. So you don't have to remember all that. But anyway, that's what happened to that sermon. It hasn't gone away. It just got postponed. And I've been thinking about... A um, couple of phrases that uh, we use, the idea of broad, you know, to broaden my horizon, or I need to broaden my horizon, or sometimes people will talk about uh, broadening their scope. And so I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know what, that's an interesting lesson. I want to kind of work on that, so I did, and that's where the lesson tonight is coming from. So, let's first of all talk about, if you've got your outline, one of the, the, the first point that I want to really look at is the need to not just broaden, but evaluate our scope. And you know, for evaluation, we might ask several sort of introspective or very personal questions. So, questions like this. If I were to say, who am I most like? And I'd like for you just to think about that question for a moment. We tend to talk about things we have in common with people. A lot of times we'll talk about family members are similar or so-and-so's like such-and-such person, whatever. Who am I most like, if there is anybody that I'm like? Um, Number two would ask this question, do I gravitate, that is, move toward people with whom I have the most in common? I would say that is true of many people, maybe most people that they gravitate toward people with whom they have the most in common, similar interest, etc., etc. And finally, number three is, do I tend to emulate, that is, to kind of copy or imitate or whatever, doing what people do, either wanting to equal what they do or even surpass it, but do I tend to emulate or imitate those around me? So those three questions, who am I most like? Do I gravitate toward people that I have a lot in common with? And thirdly, do I tend to emulate other people, especially those that I'm around, in their speech, their action, their way of thinking, etc.? Now, it is interesting, and I, and I hope you'll want to go home and spend a little bit of time sometime in the next week asking those questions, very seriously asking yourself those questions, because there is an effect, I believe, once you begin to look at those questions, there is definitely an effect. The answers of those questions really do have a lot to say about where we are spiritually. And so it does us good sometimes to ask questions like that. Now, having said all of that, I think most of us, maybe all of us here tonight, would admit that seclusion. Wes and I were kind of talking a little bit about the passage in 1 Corinthians 5 a few days ago. Um, the idea of, you know, sort of the whole Amish attitude of I need to, you know, of going out of the world and how Paul talked about really we don't want to do that. We don't want to so separate from people in the world that we, you know, be, had that philosophy. We'd have to go out of the world to completely separate. So we know that seclusion, being cut off from people, the lack of interaction with people is not good. 
In fact, studies have been, don't, have been done that would show if people are cut off completely from interacting with other people for long enough, there's a real, really some strange psychological effects that go on. So we know that's not good. And sometimes we'll even tell ourselves things like this. You know, I've I got to get out more. And we kind of feel that. You know, I've been alone. I've been alone too much. I've been kind of secluded. Uh, you know, maybe I'm working on something that requires me to spend time alone or whatever. I've got to get out more. Maybe just in general, it's an observation about how, you know, we're looking at ourselves and our, maybe the habits we're forming and all of that kind of thing. I've got to get out more. And we'll begin to think to ourselves, perhaps even say to ourselves, I need more exposure. I need to try some new things. And a lot of people will say something like that. You know, the New Year's is coming up, resolutions. A lot of people have a bucket list, a to-do list. And they'll talk about, you know, I need some new experiences. I need to do some things that are different. I need to try some new things, go to some new places, meet some new people. Sometimes people even say, I need to make some new friends. <laughs> you know, the ones I got ain't cutting it. So I need to make some new friends. But maybe what we're saying, and I think spiritually it's a good thing, is that I've got to, let's start with, broaden my horizons. Let's give a technical definition for that, to broaden your horizons. If you were to look that up, you would find things like this. It's the idea of increasing the range of things that you know about. You know, you're sort of extending the borders of your mind, broadening your horizons. So you're learning, and I need to learn some new things, increasing the range of things you know about, or to learn about or even experience new things because we know that that's going to add something to my life if I experience new things. Now, Jules keeps telling me that if I'll skydive, you know, I'll have a whole new outlook on certain things, and I'm not going there, you know what I mean? So, but... The idea of just trying some new thing, you know, some new experience, that you, something you've never done before. And I'm not talking about something sinful. It doesn't have to be that. But so that you, you open your mind to new ideas or something that helps you gain more experience in something so you increase your understanding. I know about certain things. The older we get, and one of the reasons why older and old people can be so wise is because they've done all these things. So-and-so begins to say, especially a younger person will begin to say, I'm going through this. Or someone will say, have you ever known anybody that went through such and such? You know, the older you get, the answer is usually yes. I've gone through there, been there, done that, you know, whether I got the t-shirt or not, but I know about it. Or I know somebody that did, you know. But broadening your horizons is the idea of expanding the way you look at things. Now, go with me, if you will, to Ephesians 5. And this is a passage that I looked at a couple of times early in this quarter. And I want to look at it again in Ephesians 5 along these lines, but with respect to what we're talking about tonight. And let's start up about verse... No, that's Galatians. So, Ephesians 5. And let's start up about verse 14 and read together with me. Now, we're right in the middle of a of a passage or paragraph, but the point will be made. So God says, and this is quoted, obviously, Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now, I got to thinking about this passage again. Not in the way necessarily I was preaching it about a month and a half ago, but I got to thinking about this passage from the standpoint of broadening your horizons, and I got to thinking from the standpoint, Awake thou that sleepest, 
arise from the dead. Well, if I'm talking about kind of being sluggish in my life, not getting out, you know, I need to get out more, not willing to learn or experience new things, I need to try some new things. If I get to thinking about it like that, then I may begin to think in terms of what will God give me, what light, that is understanding, my mind being open, will Christ give me through the new experience? We might even add providence, and I'm not going to necessarily go there, but Edward led the song of, you know, from Esther really, and Wes preached about it, really talking about providence. Does God lead us into different situations sometimes? I think he does. Or I believe from Scripture that we are taught that he does. But to lead us into new experiences, to take us to new places so that he can give us understanding because we experience something, And we learn things we never would have learned if we didn't go through it. How many of us would be willing to admit, if we look back on maybe the roughest times of our life, we look at that situation, we went through that, we suffered through that, we got through that, but we came through it and we learned a lot. We learned things about ourselves, we learned things about God, we learned things about other people, etc., etc., And we have understanding, and so we talk about those experiences, and we talk about what we learned and how we're better and made better. Well, look at this passage again. Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, that sort of sluggish, lazy, not really trying to broaden your horizons. If you awake out of that, Christ will give you light. Now go on with me and notice in this passage. See then, verse 15, notice how that connects to what he's just said. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. I do believe that he's introducing a thought that will come in the next verse, but I I believe from the phrase, see then, that he is drawing on what he's just said as well. So here would be the point. If I'm willing to broaden my horizons... Christ is going to give me greater understanding. I'm going to learn because of the new experiences. And then I'm going to be able to walk my path in a different way. I'm going to be able to look around. And the idea of circumspectly is the idea of really inspecting and looking all around as you're walking. You see, your mind is open. Your eyes are open. You don't have that tunnel vision like blinders on a horse. You don't have that, but you're able with that peripheral and, let's say, spiritual peripheral view to look all around as you're walking. So you have greater understanding is the idea. So see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And then notice verse 16, redeeming the time. We only have so much time, and we all understand that. Wes made that perfectly clear in the lesson this morning. And I can either take the time that I have, whatever amount of time God gives me, and I can learn all I can learn, experience all, and I'm talking about good experiences, all that God would mean for me to, and I can be as wise as I can possibly be, or I can close myself off, never listen, never hear, etc., etc. I'll let you in on something. Somebody was asking me about this a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes I say, a lot of times I say from the pulpit, because it comes to mind as I'm preaching. I think about my experiences at Liberty and the classes I had and all of that kind of thing. Now, if you're aware of Liberty, and most of you are, well, you know that's a a Baptist school and that they teach Calvinistic doctrines and all of that kind of thing. Now, person, you know, this person was asking me, why why would you want to go there? 
And that's a legitimate question. And I said, because I want to learn. You know, for example, premillennialism was a really hot, rising doctrine in the 80s. More and more people were giving into it. And this was the leading school in that doctrine. They had garnered and gathered, Jerry Falwell had, all the best professors from Dallas Theological Seminary, etc., etc. And I wanted to learn about that. I knew going into it that I didn't believe, but I wanted to really broaden the horizon, if you will. I wanted to broaden my understanding, to learn. I wanted to hear it from those that believe it and are considered to be the best teachers of it and some other doctrines as well. That's the idea of gaining wisdom because you're willing to take the blinders off. It's the way, you know, it's the reason why people read certain books or preachers study certain commentaries. And they don't always try to, you know, they don't go, for example, looking for commentary on passages. You know, the precursor is not, let me find everybody that agrees with me. You know, I mean, if you do that, you really limit your understanding. So redeeming the time, you've got so much time. So much that God is going to allow you the freedom, the ability to learn, then redeem it. Buy it back. Use it profitably is the idea because the days are evil. Now finally, verse 17. That is why. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. When I was thinking about this the other day, and think about that phrase, Christ shall give you light understanding the will of the Lord. I started seeing that in a way maybe I've never really seen it before. Is at least part of what he's saying here. That the willingness to take the blinders off, go out and learn and experience and broaden your mind and so forth, will you learn things you never would have learned? I can tell you this for a fact. There are things that I think I know and things I think I understand about the truth that I don't think I would, at least, maybe I would have, but I know that it at least facilitated me understanding that, being at liberty. Sometimes it was because I went into a classroom and a professor said something, and I said, I don't think that's right, but I don't know how to answer it, you know. And so you go and you start digging and looking, and you come away with understanding that if somebody hadn't challenged your thinking, you might not understand. So that's what I'm talking about. So broadening my scope. It's the way you inspect things. The way you examine things. That's what we're talking about with the word scope. It's, it's When you put a scope on top of a rifle, you look through it, and you see an image. Everton, you know all about this. You see an image so far away, details that you would not see. You didn't look through the scope, is the point. And so it's the idea of broadening my scope. Creating a greater ability to inspect, to look over something, to examine something, to evaluate. A person might be inclined to say, after I've said all of this, someone might be able to, you know, might be inclined to say, wait a minute, let's look back at Matthew 7 and verses 13 and 14. And, you know, entering in at the straight gate, the narrow gate, walking the straight and narrow way and all of that. How much does God allow for this broad view that you're talking about when Jesus says walk the straight and narrow? And I say again that, yes, the Lord said walk the straight and narrow. The Lord said go through the narrow gate. But it is Jesus who tells us in Ephesians 5, walk circumspectly. And here's the point. 
The more I broaden my horizons, the greater ability, let's say it like this, the greater ability I gain to inspect, to examine, to look, the greater amount of knowledge I gain, the better I will be able to walk the straight and narrow path. It becomes the, it, it, it becomes the thing that sharpens the ability to know how to move on the path. Because if you don't do that, and you never consider anything else, you may be walking a straight and narrow path. It may be very narrow. And the truth is, it might be the wrong one. But you're on that narrow path, and you're walking that narrow path, and you're never considering any challenge, any question, anything else, anything that would object to the way you're walking. You're just walking that narrow path. It's how I've always done things. It's the way my mom and dad did things or whatever. And you stay on that narrow path, but it's not the right narrow path. No, it's the person that's willing to open his mind and look at things that better enables him to see where he needs to go. Now, having said that, let's move to something else very similarly in the New Testament. So I need to evaluate my scope. Is it broad enough? Am I really walking circumspectly? But then there is the need to follow examples in the Bible. We've had passages read today, both lessons, both sermons, in which we talk about, and songs that we've sung, in which we talk about following in the steps of our Savior, doing what our Savior did, being holy like God is holy, etc., etc. And without question, and, and I, I make this statement, and I, won't, I have no reservations about making it, nor would I think any of you would, Jesus is the supreme example and we follow in his every step. First Peter chapter 2 would teach us that without question. And we might think, being human beings, if you have a perfect example, Jesus is the perfect example, that what God would tell us to do is ignore everything else around you, ignore everybody else around you, and follow Jesus. Because Jesus is perfect. Now that seems logical at least to me, and it may seem logical to you, if you've got an absolutely pristine, perfect example, follow him and him on. But it's not what God told us to do, is it? It's interesting that having that perfect example and even being commanded to follow in his steps, God would still see the need for me following other examples. For, let's, for example, and no pun intended, but let's look at a couple of passages. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 4, and I'll start there. Now, here was a passage that grew out of, and I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this, but you can read the first four chapters. And this grows out of people putting too much stock in one person. So, in chapter 3, down in about, what is it, verse 6 or verse uh, 4, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, well, I am of Cephas, that kind of thing. So people, you know, here's the guy I follow. Peter, I follow Peter. No, Paul, I follow Paul. Well, Apollos. Apollos is my guy. And so growing out of that, if you'll go down with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to jump down in verse 7, right in the middle again of a paragraph. But Paul is talking about and arguing against that, and he says this. Now, there's some interesting things said here. He says, For who maketh thee different from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why do you glory And if you had, as if you had not received it? Now, you are full, he said. You are rich. 
You have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God you did reign, that you also might, that we also might reign with you. Now, what is he saying there? You've had a lot of advantage, and there's a lot more to it, but I'm going to use that point. You've had a lot of advantage. You've gained a lot. Yeah, Paul did go through there, and so did Peter, and so did Apollos, and so did others. And they've had a tremendous amount of advantage. You might look at a church that's been in existence for some length of time. You might talk about the different preachers and Bible teachers and different members that were there. And you might say to people that gain from all of that, boy, you've had a lot of advantages. Well, they had had a lot. Now notice down again in verse 9. I think that God has set forth the apostles last, interestingly enough. And we would think he would not say that. But I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a, a spectacle or a gazing stock or whatever, unto the world, to angels, and even to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now this begins to hit at a philosophy of Paul's. And it's, it is quite different than the philosophy of people to line up behind some great person like Paul. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are, of course, strong. You are honorable. We are despised. Disregarded is the idea, without honor. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're naked. We're buffeted, which means we're beat on, we would say today. And we have no certain dwelling place. And we labor, verse 12, working with our own hands, being reviled. In other words, somebody kind of looking at a guy out making tents. Are you supposed to be one of the leading, you know, members of the Church of Christ in the world, and you're out here making tents? I mean, come on. So we look down on, Paul said, made fun of, but we bless when we are. We're persecuted. We suffer that. We're defamed, verse 13. We entreat. Even when we're so put down, all our honor taken away, we plead, we beg. We don't have a problem doing that. We're not arrogant, is the point. We are made as the filth of the world. And we are the offscouring of all things unto this day. He goes on, verse 14. I write not these things to shame you, as if to say, you know, we're so humble and you guys are so this or that. I'm not trying to shame you. But as my beloved sons, I warn you. Now that's interesting to me. I'm not telling you that I'm so beat up, put down, etc., etc., as for you to feel sorry for me and to say, oh, you've had it so bad, Paul, and I feel so guilty for having it so good. I'm not writing it like that. I'm writing to you as my children, and he had started the church at Corinth, because I'm warning you what can happen when you have so much advantage. Now read verse 15. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. Remember, they had all these great teachers already. Well, if you had 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. He alone was that. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Now watch for it in verse 16. Wherefore, again, that is why. Here's my conclusion. I beseech you. The idea is I'm begging you as my children. Notice that. Be followers of me. Isn't that strange? You're writing a book, and your premise for four chapters has been, you guys are saying, I am of Paul, some of you, and some of you have chosen somebody else, and I'm telling you that's dead wrong. Only to come back and talk about how put down he is, how much they, that he suffers, etc., etc., and say, be followers of me. 
You wouldn't think you would say to somebody who has a problem following a human being too much. You wouldn't think you would say be followers of me unless you understand that what he's saying is be followers of me as I'm following Christ and all of this is coming on me because of it. And if you're reading that, you understand that's where he's going with it. And if you go over to chapter 11 and verse 1, he'll say it just like that. Follow me as I follow Christ. Let's look at another example. Go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul goes into Thessalonica about AD 50-51. Paul teaches in Thessalonica. The church begins there. And they become very quickly an exemplary church. I mean, they are just... They're everything you want. Paul is worried about them. If you remember the story of Thessalonica, he's very worried. He has to leave the town too quickly, leave these young brethren behind. He's worried. He sends people back to check on them. He writes this letter back to encourage them and, you know, basically say, I hope you're all right. And what he finds from the report of the people that he sends to check on them is that these guys are not all right. They're great. They're doing fantastic. So let's read that in 1 Thessalonians 1, down in verse 5. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but it came in power, and in the Holy Spirit, he says, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us. If you went and looked at that story in Acts 17, we won't tonight. But if you look at that story in Acts 17 and you realize... Here is Paul and those with him, those companions with him. Here they are going into this place, and even though they're being all those things he just said in Corinth, beat on and put down and defamed and all of that kind of stuff, they are working, they're doing those jobs, supporting themselves, preaching the gospel, and they're giving a great example to these converts from idolatry to the truth. And Paul said, you know what? It worked. You followed our example. And of the Lord, verse 6, And he said, You had received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples, basically the two counties, we would say, two provinces, Macedonia, Achaia. For from you sounded out. If you remember when I preached this several years ago, I talked about the word broadcast, because that's literally what it's saying here. You broadcasted. The word of the Lord. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but you know what? Your example has gone so far as to touch everybody in, in Christ, in this whole part of the world. Everybody knows about the Thessalonians. So, here were people who looked at an example. Paul and Timothy and people like that. They looked at an example. And they followed that example and they ran with it. And they became what they should become because they saw in Paul and they saw in these others the willingness to serve Jesus Christ above all else. And even when the hard times came, you know, when people are trying to kill them and they have to rush Paul out of town, if you read that in Acts 17, boy, he's still faithful. He's still going on with the truth. He's still doing what he's supposed to do. And they learn from that. Now, if you turn a page or two over and go to chapter 4, you still hear Paul talking about that following the example that he had said. Furthermore, we beseech you, brethren, verse 1. Sounds very much like the language in 1 Corinthians. 
But we beseech you, brethren, we encourage you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received of us how you ought to walk, and to please God, so you would just abound more and more. In other words, running with the example you, you follow. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, verse 3, even your sanctification, or remember, holification, that you should abstain from fornication. And every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. I believe he means his body here, like the, the body that is the temple of the Lord, in holiness, in sanctification, and honor. And not in the lust of concupiscence, you know, evil desires like Gentiles. That no man, verse 6, go beyond and cheat or defraud his brother in any matter. Think about Paul. Think about the example Paul set. He's out there working hard. And, you know, put that in real terms. It's like somebody today has a full-time job. And when he gets off of the full-time job, he goes and works a second full-time job preaching the gospel. You've ever done that kind of thing? And I know some of you have. You're worn out. You're tired. Nobody looks at a person that works that hard as somebody who would dare cheat somebody else. He's not getting ahead by what he can take from somebody. He's getting ahead by working hard, and boy, they're learning that lesson. And he says, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, that is, people who cheat others. And as we also forewarned you, verse 7, For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He, therefore, that despises, looks down on, despises not man but God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Paul says, you don't need to line up behind me and choose me as the one over everybody else. I'm not asking you to do that. I don't want you to do that. Who am I? And that's what he would say in 1 Corinthians. But he is saying, if I set a great example, then follow it. And more than that, Kind of like a good parent will do with his child. Take the advantages I've given you and go further. Be better than me. If I can help you be better than myself, I've done my job as a parent. Spiritually, that's what he's doing here. Go further. Be more than I am. In Philippians chapter 3, the passage that was read for us, and I want to go back to Philippians 3 for a moment. In Philippians chapter 3, he kind of does that same thing, doesn't he? And I'm not going to read the part. We've read it a couple of times already in sermons this year. But the idea of reaching and grasping and pushing and plotting to be like Jesus Christ, he talks about all of that in Philippians 3. And he talks about all the things that he gives up to do that. But I want to go down really to verse 15. After he has made that great statement, you know, I press on toward the mark of the high calling. Look at verse 15 again. Let us, therefore, now he's including all of them. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, complete, be thus minded. In other words, think like this. He goes on to say in verse 16, none of us have already attained. Now, you can go back earlier in the paragraph and see he's talking about the idea of making it, of you know being exactly like Jesus Christ, and we've none of that. None of us have done that. We all have faults. But then he goes on to say, in verse 16, whereunto we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Now, how are we going to accomplish that if we're all different? And I want you to think about it like this for a moment. If we're all different like we are in this room, we could take, I don't know how many people are here tonight, but, you know, 40, 50 people. If we took all of us, and we were to be able to examine all of us completely, I'll tell you exactly what we would find, and it's what you already know. 
We are all, we all have our strengths. We all have our good qualities and characteristics. And we all have our faults. So how is it that all of us who think differently, look at things differently, know different things, etc., 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 how are we all going to mind the same rule and think the same way? That's a good question. It begs a question. It is very logical to ask that question because we are inclined to say it's not possible. Paul said, no, it is. And here's how it is, verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me. Again, he comes back to it. But not just me. Because I'm going to tell you something. And Paul would be the first to tell you this. As great as Paul is, he has already told you in chapter 3, a few verses before that, he doesn't have it all. So if you're going to follow Paul's every move, try to ape Paul, mimic Paul, imitate Paul in everything, you're going to be a pretty good person. And you're going to fall short just like Paul falls short. So Paul said, be followers together of me, but not just me. And mark. And the word there, literally in the original language, is scope. Scope out other people. Notice that. Mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. You see what he's saying there? Grammatically, what he's saying is, scope out everybody. Every faithful Christian you can find, everybody that you can see doing what they're supposed to do in at least some area. And put all of that together with Paul and have that whole big group as your example. Now that's different than me saying to somebody, you do what I tell you to do. You do as I do. Because if you do as I do, you're not going to be totally right. I make mistakes. I fail. And I hope that if I'm, since I'm commanded to keep knowing and keep learning and so forth, that I don't know it all yet. And I assure you, I don't. So Paul is saying you've got to add other examples. You have to broaden the horizon. There's got to be more than that. Sometimes I wonder... You know, elders are supposed to be supreme examples in a congregation. And I wonder if the reason for demanding there be a plurality of elders is because no matter how perfect one guy may think he is, he ain't. And you need more than one. You need that complement. You need that group of people leading. So you have multiple examples. Now again... Let's make a quick point, but I've made parts of it all through the lesson. The problem with limiting your examples. Now, I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. That great chapter of examples. The problem of limiting examples is just what we said. No example, except Jesus. No example is perfect. And, and the point is, we don't, we have Jesus every day. In the Bible, we have him, and we have all of that he did as a great example. But there are so many things in life that we don't see examples of Jesus doing. We don't see a whole lot of interaction with his parents. We see some, but we don't see a whole lot. We don't see a whole lot of things like that, everyday things of life. And so God has told us, follow examples. 
You know, there are all kinds of good examples. If I were to say to you, who are the best parents you know? Who had the most successful children you know? You probably immediately start thinking of certain people that you know. I may not know them, but you do. If I were to say to you, who knows the Bible better than anybody that you know? You start thinking of people. And we could go on and on with that. And if you want to be successful in different areas spiritually, what you want to do is you want to seek out people that excel in that area. Now look at Hebrews 11 for a moment. I'm not going to read through this chapter, but you know it. By faith Abraham did this. By faith Moses did that. By faith Sarah did this. By faith Rahab did that. And you go through this long list, people call it the Hall of Faith. Or people look at it and say the great, you know, the great list of examples. And you wonder, why do you devote such a long chapter in the Bible, example after example after example after example? And because you're going to come in chapter 12, and you're going to say in verse 1, seeing that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do so and so. And I'll tell you what I think he's doing. One of the things certainly that he is doing and that he is saying is he's illustrating the need to have multiple examples. We could take every one of these people and we could find great qualities in their life. I mean, we could see man where they were champions of the faith. And you know what else? We could take every one of these people and see them as miserable failures. I can talk about Abraham with the faith to go out and sacrifice Isaac. And man, how do you have that kind of faith? And I can talk about Abraham, a coward who lied about his own wife being his sister. And man, how do you do that? Because that's people. And if you put everything into one person, my whole faith, my whole Christianity is in the faith I have in Michael White. You know what's going to happen to you? When I fail, and I will, you're going to be blown out of the water. But if you're looking around you and you're adding all these examples in your life, and that includes your parents and your grandparents and your family members and your brothers and sisters that are here at this place and everywhere else you're aware of, and you begin to look at all of these people and you see their great qualities and you say, in that, I want to be just like that. Now, you know, I see they have faults and failures, but boy, in that thing, man, if I could be like that. And when you add up enough of those, you've got this great cloud of witnesses, if you will. And look at verse 1. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. If there's something that I struggle with, I don't want to seek out somebody I have that in common with. I don't want to find another person and we can cry on each other's shoulder and talk about how we both need to fail in this area. I want to find someone who excels in that area. And I want to follow that example so I can get out of this rut of sin that I'm in and do better with my life. That's broadening my horizons or broadening my scope. If we go back to Philippians 3, or 1 Corinthians 4, I believe that's the point Paul was making. Brethren, you can't line up behind anybody, not even an apostle. None of us are perfect. You line up behind Jesus, but what Jesus says 
is find good examples in a host of people. And follow the best in all of those. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you believe in Jesus, that He is the Son of God. And tonight you'll confess that. You're willing to change your life, which may mean finding good examples and following. But tonight you'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins, to have all of your sins washed away. The Lord will forgive you. And the beautiful thing about our God is that He wants to take those things out of your life and let you start all over. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been baptized and your life has gotten off course and you've not been following the path you need to follow. It's a good time to turn things around. We're about to enter a new year. Start fresh. Why don't you please come while we stand and sing.